This is Dana Thomas, and you're listening to The Green Dream, a podcast about how to green up your life by Wondercast Studio. Climate change is bearing down on us like a mighty hurricane. And it's scary as hell, but it doesn't have to be. I'm Dana Thomas, a leading voice in the sustainable fashion movement. On The Green Dream, I welcome global experts, creators, and change makers from politics, business, and the arts for dynamic conversations on how you can green up your life. The Green Dream is the podcast of hope. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. My guest today is Amy Powney. She's the creative director for the It Girl sustainable fashion brand, Mother of Pearl, in London. Amy is an environmental force in British fashion. She speaks often publicly about the importance of sustainability in fashion. And in January, she attended the Sustainability Summit hosted by Prince Charles and British Vogue at Dumfries House, the Prince's Wellness and Sustainability Center in Ayrshire, Scotland. Powney was there with a dozen other attendees, including yours truly, to help advise the Prince's Sustainable Markets Initiative Fashion Task Force on how to take that message of sustainable fashion to a wider audience. Amy's love for Mother Earth has deep roots. She was raised off the grid on a farm in rural England. She joined Mother of Pearl straight out of university as an assistant 14 years ago and worked her way up to the top job. When she took over as creative director, she decided to transform Mother of Pearl from a traditional fashion company to one that fully embraces green practices. In 2021, film director Becky Hutner made Fashion Reimagined, a documentary that follows Pownie as she traces Mother of Pearl's supply chain and discovers a host of environmental and humanitarian issues, including water pollution, deforestation, and global warming. It will premiere this spring at film festivals. Vogue has called Pownie one of the most clued-up designers on the subject of sustainable fashion, and the Sunday Times in London described her as the voice for a new generation of designers. Amy Pownie, welcome to The Green Dream. Thank you for joining us here in the studio in Soho, London today. Let's start by talking about what you're wearing. I do have my organic Mother of Pearl sweatshirt on, my coat. It's merino wool from Portugal, spun in Portugal, made into the coat in Portugal. So the carbon footprint is sort of all in the boundaries of one country. And it's beautifully done. That's one of our proudest pieces and our best-selling pieces. And what is it called officially? It's called the Wren Coat. There's two slight variations. And I see it has your signature of giant pearls. It has the pearl shoulder. That is our iconic shoulder. What are the pearls made of? They're plastic, unfortunately, but they are recycled plastic. Will you be moving into a plant-based plastic in the coming years? When we sort of turn Mother of Pearl completely sustainable, our fabrics was our main focus. And now we're moving into trims because it's much more complicated. But we are on the lookout to work out what we can do with our pearls. And is the wool naturally black or has it been dyed black? It's dyed. We do do the natural colours, so there are a few on our site, and it's under our sustainable attribute, which is called raw but responsible, and that means it's not been dyed. Actually, one of the colours is called pearl, so we use that one, and it's an off-cream, which is the wool's natural colour. And then you can get a few other tones, but you can't get black. You can kind of get a dark grey, but you can't get fully black. Smoky grey. Exactly, yeah. It must be very pretty. Yeah. 
And your sweatshirt is made of cotton? It's 100% organic cotton, yep. Which is sourced from where? The cotton comes from Turkey in this instance, but then it is woven, spun, finished into a garment all in Portugal, because in Portugal they don't grow cotton. Portugal used to be a cotton-growing country. It's not anymore. It's not anymore. No. And it too is dyed with natural dyes? We adhere to standards of dye, but you can't get black, black as a natural dye, unfortunately. Do you use natural indigo? We don't use natural indigo, but I know you talk a lot about that. So tell me more and maybe we can think about how we can use it. Well, Sarah Bellows in Nashville of Stony Creek Colors has come up with a natural indigo that Levi's is now rolling out worldwide. So you can have natural indigo. Oh, wow. And Mother of Pearl, because it's now going to be available on an industrial level globally. Amazing, amazing. Natural indigo is so beautiful because the color is just radiant. It's like a sapphire. Yeah. It just glistens. So for you, sustainable and eco-fashion is about materials, right? That's a big part of it, yeah. But I sort of like to think about sustainability as an entire approach to my business rather than just focusing on one thing. But of course, supply chain and product is the biggest thing that we make. So yes, materials are up there as our most important thing. But I like to think it quite holistically, every angle of how we go about every decision in the business, you know, not just the fabrics. So how would you define what sustainable fashion is? Sustainable business practice is about the people that run the company and putting people, profit and planet all into the equation equally and making sure that every decision you're making is thought through and is this the best we could make? Could we make it better? And apply that to every single thing and make it the mantra in the office, engage your staff in the same way so that we're all making these conscious decisions all the time to think about what we're doing and rethink it and rethink it. And I think that's the true essence of having a sustainable business. And then of course, with fashion, the supply chain and the materials are, you know. That it's all of a piece. Exactly. All your clothing is also ethically produced as well. Yeah. Our main production is done in Portugal, small artisan factories. We visit them on a regular basis. We have some in Turkey and we visit them too. The ones in Turkey are certified because Turkey is a little bit more complicated in terms of social issues. Portugal, luckily, is governed by EU law and it's a little bit easier and we visit them all the time so we've had one-to-one contact with them all the time and make sure that we're socially responsible as well as sustainable. Everyone's paid a living wage. Exactly. Which means that they can afford to house, feed and clothe their families. Yep. (laughs) Would you describe Mother of Pearl as slow fashion? Yeah, I mean it does adhere to the fashion calendar in that we have to make collections annually or seasonally. Some brands make multiple collections per year. Boy, do they. And that can go into the tens, if not hundreds, some of them. We make four per year and they're sort of looked at in the fashion calendar as four separate seasons. But we tend to look at them as two seasons in our business, but we split them into two drops. So the stores are getting more product. They get four drops per year, but we design it very much under one umbrella. So we look at two seasons a year, winter and summer, and then that we just have seasonal appropriate product to drop within that. You're involved with Fashion Our Future, which is a social media pledge-driven campaign with supporters like Amber Valletta and Mary McCartney. Can you explain what Fashion Our Future exactly is? I launched Fashion Our Future just before COVID hit. I'd learned so much about sustainability within the fashion industry I've made inroads within the industry and started making quite a lot of noise, but was quite frustrated with how little the consumer knew. We were working to try and pass some laws and that just went nowhere. And I thought 
if consumers don't know what a tensile fabric is or what an organic cotton is versus a conventional cotton, how's this going to scale up? So Fashion Our Future was a reaction to that and talking to people rather than industry. And the idea was that you could take one of 10 pledges and you would choose to either be, for instance, an OAP, which was an old age purchaser. So you're going to buy vintage or you were a tree hugger and you were going to only make sure that your wood pulp garments was from Tencella or a sustainable source. And there was 10 different ones and they addressed all the different fibres and fabrics out there. And then you nominated a friend to do it. So you said, I'm Amy and I'm going to be a tree hugger this year and I nominate whoever and then they're going to do their pledge too. Unfortunately, COVID hit just as we did it (laughs) and it really affected our business. So we had to really focus on Mother of Pearl. But it is going to be reignited this year in line with the documentary coming out. Fashion Reimagined, directed by Becky Hutner, will premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York in mid-June. Here's a preview. We produce so many things. 100 billion items of clothing every year, and three out of five of them end up in landfill. More collections, more garments. Newness, 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 newness. I think at the sort of peak, I made 750 designs in a year. It's nonsense. It's complete nonsense. When you talk about pulp-sourced fabrics like tensile, what does that mean? I think most listeners don't even know what their fabrics are made of, that polyester is a petroleum-based fabric that's basically plastic. And then rayon and tensile and a couple others are made of tree pulp, right? All viscoses, everything in the family of viscose, is made from wood pulp. So basically they chop down trees, they turn it into chippings, and then they pulp it, and then they turn that pulp into fibre. Conventional viscose uses a lot of harsh chemicals along the process and journey. Tencell is the same concept, but they use a lot less harsh chemicals. Tencell's the holy grail of viscose fabric. It's the greener version. Exactly, exactly. It's really complicated for consumers. And what's the difference between conventional cotton and organic cotton? What's the difference between, you know, viscose and tensile? It's really complicated. What's the difference between organic cotton and conventional cotton, for those who don't know? When you think about agriculture in your food, you can just apply exactly the same concept to fashion. So imagine the way your carrots are grown. They're either grown conventionally, which is using pesticides, using mass industrial farming methods, or you can buy them from an organic local supplier and you know that the soil's been treated without chemicals. It's the same basically for conventional cotton and organic cotton. So just imagine it as a crop in a field, the same way you would as your vegetables. And one has been treated in line with nature and one of them has been treated in line with pesticide companies. Industrialization exactly. of cotton. Exactly. Now you're very in tune to this because you grew up on a farm. I did. In Lancashire, northwest England. Yeah. What was your everyday like there? Were your parents hippies who decided to get out of the country or were they farmers and you just are a farmer's daughter? What was the life? We grew up in a small village, which was a farming village, and my parents just worked on the farms. But they had a piece of land and decided when I was about 10 to sell up our normal house, let's say, and go and move down to this piece of land, which was completely off grid, so no water, no electricity, you know, nothing, and live in a caravan while my dad built by himself a small house for us. And they continued to work on local farms. We had a lot of animals and we had land, but we weren't actually farmers ourselves, but they worked on the local ones. We had a complete off-grid, unconventional childhood. And you said your first job 
was at a radish farm labeling packets. Yeah, one of the farms my parents worked at for a long time actually was a radish farm and my parents couldn't afford to put us in childcare in summer holidays or half term. So we went with them and we used to just play. And eventually I was so bored that I said, can I just help? And then they let me help. And then I did so well, they started paying me. And it was win-win, to be honest. I was happy and could go shopping. And my parents, you know, were happy because I was doing something. You didn't grow up watching television, no America's Next Top Model, no Vogue magazines arriving in the mailbox. No, no. And actually, we could only watch TV when it was windy. So then how did you pivot to fashion? How did you get into the fashion world from the farm? My family are not fashion at all. I mean, we didn't even have a mirror in our house. I think we had one in the bathroom above the sink. Mom was totally beautiful. She is beautiful, but she worked on farms. She didn't care about how she looked. My dad just wore his overalls every day. He didn't care. But I was creative and my mum was creative too. And so I went to art school and then sort of bit by bit got into textiles. And I wanted to be a costume designer, actually. For the theatre? For the theatre. That was my dream. And then when I really thought about it, I felt like fashion would give me more avenues. Whereas when I looked at costume courses, they were very, very specific in terms of creating corsetry and period cutting. So I did fashion with an open mind and then ended up here. And you landed a job at Mother of Pearl as an assistant in the cutting room, sweeping the floors, I did. according to Laura. <laughs> um, yeah, my first job was at Mother of Pearl. My first paid job, anyway, was at Mother of Pearl. But Mother of Pearl at the time was not a sustainable brand, was it? It was a traditional high street, would you call it considered a department store brand? It wasn't high street, but it was a department store brand, and it was completely tiny, totally niche. Sold only in the UK? Yeah, it wasn't doing very well, or, you know, it was just... Who was it founded by? So Maya Norman founded the company, and she's still a business partner anyway, but um, bit by bit, she lost interest in it. And, you know, I was working there full time and managing the studio. And then I sort of ended up taking over the creative when the designer we had left. And I took over fully as a business owner and creatively, I just turned my hand to sustainability. And when which was, was that? Nine years ago, I took over fully. But it took me a couple of years to find the gumption, let's say, to damp my mark on it. You know, when you come from cutting fabric or sweeping the floors to becoming creative director, you're not appointed in that position. So you don't just sort of walk straight into the role. I had to grow into it. And do so diplomatically with your peers exactly, and your yeah. employees. Exactly. My machinist and I started at the same time and I used to cut out the fabric and he used to sew it. Now I'm his boss. And what did you do to make the company sustainable? I won British Fashion Council Vogue Fashion Fund and I'd started creeping sustainability in at that point or talking about it. And that was in what year? Probably six years ago now. And with the award, you win a monetary prize, which is £100,000, which nice. to us was a lot of money. And Absolutely. of course, you also get the status of winning the award. And I actually used all the money to just go on a journey to how do you even make a brand sustainable? We didn't even know what we were going to find. We didn't know how you grew cotton. We didn't know what wood pulp was and how you turned it into fabric. So we went on this mission. We looked at our supply chains. We traveled to find where our things were growing, what the factories were doing, how we can close a loop on those things. And actually, that's what the documentary will be about when it comes out. We went on a long journey. And then what we learned, we infiltrated into the brand. And bit by bit, we learned so much that we made the full brand sustainable. We didn't actually think we were going to be able to make it fully sustainable. We just thought maybe we could make a part of it. But we learned so much that it was amazing. We could actually apply that to every single part of the brand. Are you going towards earning a B Corp certification? We're just working now to work out what our goals are for the next few years, because B Corp in concept, I really like. 
Can you explain what that is? B Corp in basic is putting people, planet and profit all into the boardroom. So instead of the conventional linear model of profit and loss, which is how people look at businesses, it's about looking at it much more holistically and putting that into the boardroom. So all the senior people in the business think about what they're doing with the company. But there's lots of other kind of certifications, other avenues to go down. So we're having a big assessment on what our goals are for the next few years. And is it B Corp? Is it that we want to be working more hands-on with the factories? You know, where do we want to invest that money and what's going to give us the most return? But yes, we'd love to be B Corp. Now, at Mother of Pearl, you're extremely exigent, as the French like to say, about sourcing the wool of your knitwear. You ask, does my woolly sweater come from happy sheep? (laughs) Now, why is that important, happy sheep? Yeah, a lot of people don't understand about wool, and that's not just for knitwear. You know, that's in coats, it's in clothing, it's everywhere. And a lot of people assume, let's say you've bought a sweatshirt in England, or it might even say made in England, that the wool came from the sheep in England or Scotland, and it absolutely doesn't. There's very little sheep wool from England now, is there? Yeah, so you can use Scottish or British wool for carpets and quite coarse things or fillings and stuffings for things, but to make it into garments, it's too scratchy. There are a few merinos here, but it's few and far between. And merino being the top level of sheep and the softest Yes, yeah, so the merino is the glamorous, fabulous, most pampered <laughs> sheep that's got the most... The Ferrari of Exactly, sheeps. it's got the soft fur that feels fabulous. But most of that comes from Australia and New Zealand. That's because they have to live in a warm climate, albeit sometimes that's too warm. And that's actually one of the reasons we don't have them here because the cold weather, they're not hardy enough. It could kill them. So they come from warmer climates. But unfortunately, in New Zealand and Australia they get an infestation called fly strike. It's sort of like mites eat away at them. So to combat that, they cut a lot of skin off the sheep, which is where the mites nest, but they do it without anaesthetic. This is a process called muling, and we absolutely don't take part in that. We don't disagree necessarily to remove the skin to make it more comfortable with them, but they should be done under anaesthetic and treated better. So we either work with certifications where they don't mule the sheep or we work with wool from South America because the breed of sheep and the climate means they don't actually get fly strikes. So if you buy it from South America, you know it's safe or Portugal. And then, of course, shearing the sheep can be uncomfortable for them too. We went on the search of alpacas, actually, and they also go through the same process. And unfortunately, what happens is you get kind of centralised points that buy alpaca or buy wool from multiple farmers. Some of those farms are huge and some of them are quite independent. And a lot of the independents are very poor. And so they don't necessarily have the right kind of skill set or the right tools to shear them. Or budget. Or budget to shear them in the right way. So sometimes shearing can be done in quite a cruel manner. And it's almost impossible for us on this end of it to be able to tell which sheep were sheared well or not. And I did watch an alpaca get sheared and tears did roll into my eyes, actually. And it made me think whether we should do it full stop. But if it's done properly, it shouldn't be painful for them. So we just try and Or stressful. Or stressful. And then I also sort of likened it to going to the dentist or something. It's only once per year. And as long as it's not done in a horrific way, these sheep, if you get them from good farms, roam freely. So I think they have a pretty good life on a whole if you get them organic and free roaming. And happy sheep make better wool, happy right? Happy sheep make better wool, yeah. Because like us, you know, when we're stressed, our hair falls out, right? They say that about leather as well, actually, yeah. And if a sheep is stressed, then I imagine the wool is tighter, crinklier, fragile. 
I don't actually know the science behind that, but it sounds like it could make sense. I mean, I just want to make sure I used Happy Sheep for my own peace of mind. Let's talk about denim for a second. I know from my research for my book, Fashionopolis, that the fashion industry produces six billion pairs of denim jeans every year, and that at any given point of the day, half the world is wearing denim which is kind of crazy. But then when you stand on the street corner and you look around, you're like, oh yeah, that person's wearing denim, that person, that person, that person. 99% of the cotton used in those jeans is not organic, is it? No. And 99% of the indigo is not organic or natural either. And then there's the workers who sew the jeans. I saw a major denim label being produced in a sweatshop in Bangladesh by young teens in appalling conditions. Now, how do you combat all of that at Mother of Pearl with your denim line? So our denim, first and foremost, is organically grown, and that's under certifications, albeit certifications are complicated themselves. Why are they? We buy under certifications, but we rely on people in the field, so it's not always that straightforward, but that is how we buy our cotton. We also make sure we know where we've bought the cotton from, so what country it comes from. What are the countries you source from? Turkey's our main source for our cotton, but any cotton under certification is still down to the people vetting the field. So we have to rely on these certifications. Certain countries is trickier. We get ours from Turkey, but that's primarily because our factory that produces our denim is also in Turkey and they are fully certified too and we visit those. But again, the way cotton is grown, it's the same concept as I talked about with the wool. So it's many farmers all come into a centralised place. So when you actually buy a pair of jeans, even though we might know it's all from Turkey, it could have come from five different fields because it all just gets centralised and all mixed up. But we like to know what country it comes from to make sure there's no major issues when it comes to political and maybe social impacts on that. Sweatshops and slave labor and scandals and the troubles in in China with the Uyghur forced labor camps that pick about one-fifth of our cotton today. Exactly, exactly. So in sustainable fashion, you have to actually look at politics and economics as much as you have to look at your supply chain. With Portugal, for instance, we feel much safer because it's under the laws and regulations. We can go and visit it. The ones that are a bit more not governed properly, so you've got to watch the landscape at the same time. So we buy under the certifications and we monitor our factory and we visit them. And that's really the best you can do as a brand unless you own your own cotton fields and your own factories. And have you walked the cotton fields in Turkey? I have walked cotton fields in Turkey, but like I said, it's really complicated to know that that's going to be your cotton field because it doesn't work like that, basically. You can walk your factory and you can meet your spinners and you can meet your weavers and you can talk to them about where they source their cotton from. But it comes from multiple fields, but I couldn't say that field went into these pair of jeans. So in the end, this is about transparency. Transparency in your supply chain, transparency in your products. You fight hard for transparency in fashion. Why is that? First, can you explain what transparency means? The idea that you as a customer are walking into a shop buying a product and you have an understanding of that product's whole lifespan. Something says made in China, it means nothing. It goes more beyond that. And even that, it doesn't mean it was made in China no. per se. You could have stitched a button on and I would like to see content labels say made in, grown in, spun in, woven in, and you know, so that people really can see how far that garment's traveled. Why is it important, do you think? Initially, it came down just to my own ethics and values and my own moral compass and producing things correctly. The more I've got into it, the more I've become a figurehead within the industry the more I felt a responsibility towards it and the more I felt that it's not just about me and my brand, it's about helping educate other people to make those changes, to make it 
bigger and the conversation bigger and the change is bigger. And no doubt you're more sensitive to this having grown up on the farm and knowing where your food came from and helping grow it and nurture it for other people. Ultimately, as a teenager, I kind of wanted the opposite. You know, I wanted the bright lights and the Adidas tracksuit, but I guess subconsciously knowing where things came from in the first place. Or, you know, we couldn't just switch a light switch on in our house and electric come on. We had to wait for it to be windy. Water was pumped. Because you had a wind We had a wind turbine. Water was pumped from a borehole. And that's why we watch TV. That's why we can only watch TV when it's windy. But for us, like, it wasn't, amenities weren't simple. It wasn't easy. We didn't have the flick of a switch. And so I think I understood from a very young age how privileged people are just to be able to turn their tap on and clean hot water come out to be able to turn your TV on and work. And actually, those are privileges in our lives. I've never taken that supply chain from any format for granted. And I think that's how I've applied it so quickly and easily to my brand. In your Ask Amy column for Vogue, You did a whole piece on waste, meaning, you know, rubbish, trash. What do we do with our clothes when we're done with them? And you said that three out of five clothing purchases in the UK end up in the landfill within the same year and are only worn a handful of times. How can we change that thinking? This is why I launched Fashion Our Future, to try and make customers rethink their purchases. When I was young, it was expensive to buy clothes. It's cheaper now to buy clothes than it was back when I was a kid, so... We only had a few items of clothing that we treasured. It was just what we did. I think it's the only thing in the world that's ever gone down rather than up, right? And that's because of this global supply chain that's crunching. And industrialization. And the industrialization and crunching the prices of everything along the way to super low numbers, labor, farmers, crops, everything. The problem with legislation, which is for me fundamentally how we change, it's a global issue. And the problem with global politics in general is then you have to have countries working together. Look at COP26. We're trying to get everybody to come together to make agreements and supply chains are global. So if it was within the walls of one country, it would be easier to manage. But legislation is political. So it becomes really, really complicated. But simultaneously, we have to work on educating customers to think about their purchase. When they picked up a pair of jeans that were 10 quid, that they didn't see them as a 10 quid pair of jeans. They saw the true story behind it. That it was made by somebody who was not paid a living wage. Exactly. That's made of conventional cotton that was industrial farmed and treated with tons of chemicals. Exactly. Because pollution is cheaper. Exactly. Now, let's talk about laundry for a moment. You say you hardly ever wash your jeans. Yeah. And you actually tell us that to clean them, you can put your jeans in the freezer. (laughs) Now, tell me about that. I I actually don't often put my jeans in the freezer, but you can do that, and it does work. And what does it do? It kills all the bacteria often by putting them into the freezer, which is fundamentally what you're doing by washing them. But I very rarely wash my jeans. Maybe that's not a very nice thing to say, but... I feel like the minute they've been in the washing machine, when you try and put them on, they don't feel like your jeans anymore. You know, I prefer the overworn fit to my jeans. So I actually don't like putting them in the wash anyway. And of course, obviously, it's much, much better. And if you do, do it just on a short cycle to get the... Exactly. Yeah, we wash everything in our house on 30, unless it's something terrible's happened in my child's (laughs) life or something. 30 degrees Celsius. 30 degrees Celsius, yeah. Which is just warm. If everybody wash their garments on 30 degrees instead of 40, the energy that would be saved would be phenomenal. Yeah, And also the longer the clothes will last because you haven't boiled them to death. Yeah, yeah. The dyes don't fade. The plastic, the microfibers don't wash out. The seams don't fall apart because they've been cooked. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, you also say you can put your knit sweaters, your cardigans, your pullovers in the freezer. Now, what does that do for them? Well, that's the issue with moths as well, actually. If you've ever got moths, putting them in the freezer. They ate through everything in my closet during COVID. I know. Devoured. They really like the good stuff. They like the good stuff, yeah. So you put them in the freezer and that kills the bugs. That kills the moths, yeah. That's what you have to do. We try to give tips on the green dream. (laughs) Here's a good one. Freeze your jeans, freeze your sweaters. And wash your clothes on the short cycle with cold water. Lower your water bills, lower your electricity bills, lower your shopping bills. Yeah. You have just started recently a rental platform, a mother of pearl. How does it work? It's not our own rental platform. We bolted onto a rental company. Some of our products are rentable through them. But we have two elements of rental. If you've got an event to go to and you need a dress and you know you're not going to wear that piece over again if you give it back and let somebody else rent it. And then the other is try before you buy is our core classic pieces. And the idea with that is somebody can road test it for a week or a month. If they love it, they feel like they're going to wear it every day. If it's going to be in their forever wardrobe, we basically give them the price of the rental back off their purchase. But it's a bit like test driving a car. You test it, you see if you love it and you fall in love with it. And then you know you're going to wear it over and over again. Now you mentioned your forever wardrobe. Explain what that is, the forever wardrobe. Buying pieces that you know are you and that you will wear over and over again. Because of impulse purchasing, people often just buy things on a whim or think they want something and then they put it on and actually wear it out and realize, what was I thinking? This isn't me or I don't want it. Or they bought it for a one-off event and then they've never worn it again. They say in French, a faux achat. That sounds much sexier. (laughs) Which means a fake purchase or a mistake purchase. But it happens a lot because it's cheap to shop. So we talk about really considering your purchase. Now, do you think that renting clothes is truly sustainable? A lot of people argue, well, there's the dry cleaning. And in fact, Rent the Runway has the largest dry cleaning facility in the United States. Or there's the round-trip transport of the garment. In the United States, particularly, you're shipping them all over the country. Yeah. Is rental truly a long-term solution for the fashion industry? I think this goes back to what's a truly sustainable business and that idea of a holistic mindset. So you could start a rental business tomorrow, let's say, and you could send everything out on a bicycle and pick it up on a bicycle and use eco-friendly washing and not use plastic and et cetera. Or you can set up a mass industrial one that ships all globally, returns globally and uses hardcore industrial cleaning. So it kind of depends on how you look at those businesses. I think rental can be sustainable. And I think the way we approach it is quite sustainable. At the moment, we're at very regional-based rental, unfortunately, for our international customers. But So you keep it within London or... Yeah. And green cleaning? Green cleaning. Meaning no petroleum chemicals? We don't suggest rental as this fast fashion alternative. We're not trying to promote wearing something new every day. So what is the best long-term solution for the fashion industry? How will it meet the net zero carbon goals of 2050 that were set by the Paris Climate Agreement. How are we going to get carbon out of fashion? How are we going to make fashion truly green? It's a really complicated question. And it's the same question that applies to fossil fuels and... Every industry, Every industry. And unfortunately, it requires people to be less greedy in terms of business owners. It needs people to put people, planet and profit in the forefront and not just profit. It requires consumers to change their behaviour, but fundamentally, it's a global issue and an economic issue, and it's about getting the super rich to make some changes. To give back. Yeah, it's really complicated. And to think of everyone. Exactly. 
Well, thank you, Amy Pownie, for being with us. Amy Pownie is the creative director of the sustainable fashion brand Mother of Pearl. And you can find Mother of Pearl on its website, motherofpearl.co.uk. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. We welcome back author and book critic Hermione Hobie, who reviews Embrace Fearlessly the Burning World, a collection of essays by award-winning American author and nature writer Barry Lopez, published by Random House. As Hobie will tell us, Lopez spent 50 years documenting humanitarian and environmental concerns. He died on Christmas Day after a years-long struggle with cancer. LitHub calls Embrace Fearlessly the Burning World one of the most anticipated books of 2022. In 2017, three years before Barry Lopez died, the New York Times asked him about his motives for writing. Lopez, a revered, beloved, and profoundly influential figure, had behind him a half century of exploration and nearly 20 works of fiction and nonfiction to his name, including Arctic Dreams, his best-selling National Book Award-winning account of five years spent in the far north. He responded, however, with supreme and zen-like humility to this question. I can tell you in two words, he said, to help. The simplicity of that response, to help, goes some way in explaining why the term travel writer may be accurate, but is in no way an adequate description for what Barry Lopez did. Lopez, who died on Christmas Day in 2020 at the age of 75, was more a seeker than a traveler, a person who approached each new place humbly, curious as to what it could teach him and how he could best honor it. As the British writer Robert McFarlane put it, running through Lopez's work is, the idea that natural landscapes are capable of bestowing a grace upon those who pass through them. Certain landscape forms in his vision possess a spiritual correspondence. In the awkwardly titled and eponymous essay of a newly published posthumous collection, Embrace Fearlessly the Burning World, Lopez considers what he calls the central project of my adult life as a writer. It was, he writes, to know and love what we have been given and to urge others to do the same. It's in this same essay that Lopez insists we need to step into a deeper conversation about enchantment and agape. It is more important now to be in love than to be in power. For Lopez, the world was there to be paid all possible attention, which is another way of saying that the world was there to be loved. In this sense, he was never a tourist, that is to say, a person for whom travel was a pleasure-seeking, sightseeing sort of jaunt. Instead, his process was slow, thorough, and steeped in respect. With ingenuous frankness, he describes this process in an essay titled On Location. 
Often, he admits, new and sometimes unfathomable dimensions would emerge in the evolving structure of the story I was thinking about writing. With those dimensions would come what he identifies as a feeling of faded comprehension. As he immerses himself, for example, in subsistence hunting in Alaska and the racist policies surrounding the practice, he confesses to feeling in over my head. In another essay, he regrets his shortcomings as an observer. It is from this state of uncertainty and overwhelm, however, that he pushes through complexity to find coherence and honesty. The essays collected here all proceed with careful solemnity. The sense of duty is palpable and sometimes oppressive. It follows then that Lopez considered entering the priesthood, but decided against it because, as he put it, such a life seemed too easy. Instead, he lived a worshipful life through his writing with an equal sense of vocation. I continue to rely, he wrote, on the centrality of a life of prayer, which I broadly took to be a continuous, respectful attendance to the presence of the divine. As the rather cumbersome and grave injunction of this book's title might suggest, one doesn't turn to Lopez's work for laughs. These essays are devoid of irony, wit, and frivolity, in the same way an arctic tundra is of Starbucks. There is, however, an ecstasy in his language, a writer's palpable pleasure in the transmutation of sights and senses into words. While exploring the Weddell Sea, boundaried by the Arctic Peninsula, Lopez relishes the opportunity to walk that pellicle beneath a vault of starlight so intense you could read your shadow in the snow. A reader might also encounter a word as wild and wonderful as sastrugi, meaning the dense, hard runners of snow that indicate the prevailing direction of the wind. In one particularly reflective essay, Lopez writes, Whatever our individual failings might be, many of us, in the end, I think, wish only this, to make some simple contribution, a good one, or an original one, if that be our gift, to be recalled as having done something worthy and dignified with our time. How satisfying to read this last book of his and realize that Lopez got his wish. New episodes of The Green Dream come out the first and third Tuesday of the month. So we'll be back in two weeks with award-winning British designer Catherine Hamnett, a pioneer in sustainable fashion. Hamnett made her name in the early 1980s by printing statement t-shirts that declared important political and social commentary. Her most famous read, 58% do not want Pershing, a reference to the United States' placement of Pershing nuclear missiles in Europe. Hamnett wore the t-shirt to a London Fashion Week reception with Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher at 10 Downing Street in 1984. I wasn't actually going to go as Jasper Conrad said, why should we go and have a glass of warm white wine with that murderess? But then I thought my family and my father was in the armed forces and he was actually a defense attaché, worked in the cabinet office, actually was even working in the Pentagon during the Bay of Pigs. He was representing the British military. So I kind of got politics from a pretty early age. My family was still quite snobbish and they loved to have pictures of themselves with kings and queens and presidents. At St. Martin's I went from very posh, right-wing, Republican-type chick to this super-socialist. So 
I thought, well, actually, yes, you know, they can have their bar pictures. I'll get one that they can put in a silver frame on the piano. So that was, was a sort of a practical joke, really, on Thatcher. I had no idea that it was going to go so... I mean, it's almost like a millstone around my neck, so I can't escape it. And it was quite funny. Hamnet has been needling the fashion and political establishment ever since, rightly earning her the nickname, the bad girl with integrity. We hope you'll join us. This episode is sponsored by Another Tomorrow, a women's fashion brand that redefines luxury with a commitment to ethics, sustainability, and transparency, from farm to fabric to atelier. Find Another Tomorrow on its website, anothertomorrow.co, at its flagship boutique, 384 Bleecker Street in New York City, and at select stores. This episode of The Green Dream was written by Dana Thomas, from Talkbox Productions with executive producer Tavia Gilbert, with mix and master by Kayla Elrod, music performed by Eric Brace of Red Beat Records in Nashville, Tennessee. The Green Dream is a production of Wondercast Studio. You can find us online at wondercast.studio. I'm Dana Thomas, the European Sustainability Editor for British Vogue. You can read my monthly column in the magazine or online at vogue.co.uk. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle for both is Dana Thomas Paris. Thank you for listening.